This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast, session number two. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now, here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Sicoria. Today, I'm really excited to share this conversation I had with Steve Lawyer. Uh, Steve is a good friend of mine, and we met way back in the day as first-year graduate students at Auburn University. These days, Steve is the director of clinical training at Idaho State University. In today's episode, we talk a lot about science and pseudoscience. We talk about it in the context of our broader popular culture, but we also get into its implications for clinical practice. So before we get to the interview itself, I want to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by bside21.org. bside21.org is an ABA news site with hundreds of articles connecting behavior analysis to our world in a non-academic format. Uh, It's a really great site, and there's all sorts of interesting articles on there. And uh, as I like to tell people, it's kind of like Yahoo News for behavior analysis, uh, but with the added benefit of being factually correct. So uh, when you get a chance, check them out at bsci21.org. That's B-S-C-I-2-1.org. The next thing I want to mention before we get to the interview itself is uh, I want to talk about how you can make sure that you can access future episodes of the Behavioral Observation podcast. Uh, There are basically uh, a couple of ways to get this done. The easiest way to do this is for those of you who are listening uh, to this and have downloaded it from iTunes uh, and listening to it either um, on your iTunes application or on your podcast player, is to just hit the subscribe button. Uh, that way, anytime I publish a new episode, it'll get automatically downloaded. Uh, and that would work uh, the same way for those who have the uh, Stitcher radio app uh, for those with uh, Droid devices. Um, another way to go about this is to listen directly on the website. Uh, by the time this podcast is published, I should be able to have a little player uh, for uh, button for each episode, and you can just uh, listen to it directly from the website. Uh, in order to be notified of new episodes, the easiest way to go about doing that is to, uh, from the website, sign up for our email list. Finally, you can follow us on social media. We are at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations. And uh, I am also on Twitter, and the Twitter handle is at behavior podcast. So without any further ado, enjoy this interview with Steve Lawyer. Steve Lawyer, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for joining me today. Um, we're going to talk about uh, you know general issues uh, and related to science and how we can be better consumers of science and maybe veer into some things having to do with a preferred topic of yours, uh, pseudoscience. But uh, before we get into that, I, I know you're a comic book fan, so tell us what your origin story is. I know you grew up in the... Uh, bastion of behavior analysis in uh, in Michigan. So uh, g- give us a little uh, peek behind the curtain. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I uh, went to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan for my my undergraduate degree. And to be honest, I kind of fell into the program there. I, I went went to school there and, and uh, by relative happenstance, fell into psychology, decided that uh, it was uh, a really interesting way to go. Uh, for me, primarily, 
with the idea being that we could apply science to, to human behavior and, and use that understanding to uh, better humanity and, and make life better for a lot of folks in a way that we could feel really confident about. And got my undergraduate degree at Western Michigan, um, very much uh, behaviorally oriented uh, undergraduate program. And uh, so that really forms in many ways a, a pretty significant foundation for how I view um, human problems and how I view the world in many ways. I did a, uh, after I graduated from, from WMU, I did my uh, uh, graduate work at Auburn University where I was in the uh, doctoral program of clinical psychology there, which was uh, much more oriented toward cognitive behavior therapy and, uh, and empirically supported treatments um, and using an empirical approach to, to doing mental health care. And um, did a postdoctoral fellowship at uh, National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center. We did a lot of research and, and therapy on folks who have been traumatized uh, in, in, the, in the community and uh, with my efforts there being to really do my best to help humanity by applying uh, empirically supported approaches and evidence-based approaches to, um, uh, to traumatize folks, uh, kids and, and adults. And, and ended up working now. I'm a, a professor of psychology at Idaho State University where I uh, train clinicians and, and researchers and, uh, and doing many of the things that, uh, that I always wanted to do and, and lucky enough to do right now. Uh, wow, that's a that's a pretty concise rundown of uh, of your career so far. Um, now I know, and of course you and I have you know go back many many years. Um, so in our conversations in the past, you've always said something to the effect of you know you're a you feel that you're a scientist first, a psychologist second, and a behavior analyst third. Do you want to kind of uh, describe what that means in a little bit more detail? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So. You know, for my, in my opinion, a, a scientific worldview is just an amazing worldview, an amazing view, to, way to to view the world and understand how things operate. And so, I try to be, to the extent that I can, scientific in in, in how I do things and how I view view the world around me. And that so that involves embracing a whole bunch of different perspectives that are not necessarily tied to mental health or psychology or behavior analysis. But having an appreciation for all things science and um, and understanding how science really has has helped humanity um, and as as just an underlying uh, motivation and in, in most of the things that I do professionally, I put psychology as the the second tier of that because um, you know, from my view, I, I should maybe make the argument not just psychology, but scientific psychology is what 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 guides what I do uh, by and large as as a clinical psychologist. Um, there are we think about science, we think about scientific psychology. There's a whole range of different ways to view the world. I think that give uh, give us a uh, a nice uh, comprehensive picture of things. And uh, that is not necessarily tied to one uh, to any one particular school of thought. So I try to be open-minded about how I view the world. I certainly come from a, a behavioral background, and in my uh, heart of hearts, I'm probably a behavior analyst. Uh, but I also try to have an appreciation for other uh, empirical aspects of the field of psychology, and, uh, and so that's that's why I put. Uh, 
being a psychologist as uh, on the second tier. And then the third tier is behavior analysis in the sense of that's typically how I view things, but I'm also trying to be open to the possibility that a behavior analytic worldview, as, as amazing and great as it may seem, doesn't necessarily have the market cornered on the truth. And um, uh, although by and large, that's how, that's how I view things. And I think it's uh, in, in many ways uh, more right than, than, than other perspectives. Uh, I try to be open-minded, and so it, it, it falls underneath the, 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 the psychology domain, but it's still uh, very near and dear and incredibly important to how I operate day-to-day as a psychologist. Okay, I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you, and I think those are uh, – is that the behavior analyst uh, down the bottom <laughs> left is. corner? Did I spot that correctly? There, there is the behavior analyst. Okay, all right. Absolutely. Okay, and, all right. and then there's a Freud I, action figure. Is that is that what I there, see as well? I, I have a – See, this a, is great radio, folks. You know, have, If you're in the uh, car, you have no idea what you're missing uh, out on. I so. have a Sigmund Freud action figure. I have Charles, Charles Darwin action figure, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder action figure. And Albert Einstein action figure, and and then you know on the pseudoscience domain, you actually actually can probably see. Oh yeah, yeah. You're looking right at my pseudoscience shelf. I actually have a, a whole collection of pseudoscience uh, paraphernalia, and one of my favorites is a board game called Kreskin's ESP, that uh, is replete with all kinds of all all, all manner of things uh, pseudoscience, and okay. so it's good so- stuff. So, so for the listeners out there, you just got the 50 cent tour of uh, <laughs> the director of clinical trainings office at uh, um, Idaho. Uh, so, anywho, um, m- more seriously, uh, uh, um, you know, we, we throw around the term evidence based quite a bit, and and I travel less in the world of academic psychology and more in the world of uh, special education, and to a lesser extent, uh, regular education. And so, you know, we want to um, be concerned with uh, and, and employ practices that are that are you know quote unquote evidence based. And again, that's a big thing in in um, public education circles. Can you talk about what that means, at least from your perspective, as someone who is interested in you know uh, scientific processes in in general? You know, what would be a good working definition for someone who doesn't have you know the kind of research background that uh, um, you know that that you have? Sure. Well, I, I'll give you a, a little bit of a two-pronged answer here. So in general, in clinical psychology, just like in medicine, um, evidence base has a relatively specific uh, definition, but um, there's really, it's a, a sort of rests on a three-legged stool, evidence-based practice. One is, uh, are you using uh, procedures and techniques and treatment approaches that have empirical justification in the literature. In other words, are you doing things that have been studied, things that have been validated using approaches that has uh, the confidence of empiricism behind it in some way, shape, or form? And I'll, I want to follow follow up on what, what I mean by that uh, a little bit more. But the other two legs of the stool are... Um, evidence-based practice also really does include your experience as a clinician and your your clinical judgments that play in if you you know if you've been working with a, a population for 10 years you've amassed uh, at least theoretically a um, a database of information in terms of 
what sorts of things work with the population that you've worked with? What sorts of skills are you able to muster to bring uh, change into effect? And that, that can play into the decisions that we make as clinicians. And it's, uh, it is an important aspect of evidence-based medicine, evidence-based clinical practice. Then the, the third leg is really the uh, client values and characteristics that might help you determine what kind of treatment, what kind of approach you're going to use with an individual. And the thing that's important here is that you can have somebody who presents with a particular problem and you could have a treatment that you know based on a, a an enormous literature, uh, you have a treatment that you know works very, very well with this kind of presenting complaint. But if for whatever reason, whether it has to do with that person's values or their comfort with that particular treatment, if they're not going to do the treatment, the treatment's not going to work. And so as a clinician, you have to consider what the person's values are with the characteristics that they have to determine whether or not you're going to use a particular type of treatment. So that's the really the three-legged stool where we consider evidence-based practice. But I want to say a little bit more about what I mean by evidence-based and because I think that term can be problematic um, for those of us who are, who are interested in empirically-based uh, approaches to, to intervention. Evidence-based typically means using intervention procedures that the therapist uh, uses because there's evidence beyond his or, own, his or her own clinical judgment that uh, gives uh, the person confidence in the, in, in the intervention's efficacy or effectiveness. The basic notion here is that people who are providing mental health care should use clinically relevant evidence when providing behavioral health to their clients. Um, but the problem with this is that what counts as evidence can vary across clinicians. So what counts as evidence for me might be different for what counts as evidence for you. But typically, in when we for folks who promote evidence-based practice, um, there is a level of grading in terms of the types of evidence that is better and the types of evidence that's, that's less um, appropriate to use. So, for example, in clinical psychology, um, evidence that is amassed using uh, randomized control trials or uh, gr you know, using group designs where you have an intervention and a comparison to either no treatment or maybe a standard treatment or some, some other type of treatment uh, are viewed as superior to those that tend to be uh, lower in terms of rigor. So where the bottom rung of evidence would, re would be the case study, which is basically a description of using a treatment to, for, for a particular case. And reporting the outcomes. And reporting the outcomes, but really not having a lot of experimental control over whether or not the treatment that you used was in fact responsible um, for the outcomes. And, you know, the process is relatively straightforward if you talk about um, common problems that are well-researched, such as anxiety or depression and things like that. But this issue becomes a little bit more difficult when you have more esoteric or less common types of uh, presenting complaints where there's not a, um, a very strong research base. So the kinds of evidence that people use um, when they're doing evidence-based practice can really depend on the, the, the complaint that's, that's in front of them and the evidence that's available to them. So if you're working with someone <clears throat> who, for instance, has a, a, a low-incidence disability, uh, you 
that and you just can't pull up um uh you know uh appropriate literature with ease or the literature base is is sparse then then the level of evidence is going to be uh less for for that particular case is that kind of what you're saying that is what i'm saying so so in terms of having a very clear okay here here's the problem you have and here's the treatment that you use in that situation you're much more inclined to rely on you should still be using an evidence base on relying on what sorts of maybe behavioral mechanisms might be at work with someone with a particular presenting complaint. Uh, you're still you still might be in a in a theoretical domain, but if those are well established mechanisms, putting those to use um, when they have a strong evidence base would be another another level of using evidence based treatment. So I know this is kind of a <clears throat> a basic question, but you know the way in which we talk about what is evidence based, what is you know quote unquote backed by science, et cetera. You know, we use those things a lot, especially in the world of autism treatment when we talk about applied behavior analysis being more or less the the gold standard for uh, intervention choices and things like that. Um, And I sometimes hear people say, well, such and such is proven to be effective and such and such is not, isn't proven, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on the word? I've always been uncomfortable with the word prove. Um, Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. Oh yeah. So yeah, the the idea that science proves something is is true or proves something is not true is uh, is a very seductive uh, way of thinking about things. But it's really not how science works. Um, science doesn't actually prove anything. At least the way the way that I view it. Um, you know, and that way of thinking really humans tend, we like to think in all or none dichotomies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a level of certainty. And you say, well, science proves this or science proves that. It gives you a level of certainty that's very, um, very attractive in a variety of ways. But science really doesn't work that way. Uh, things aren't proven per se. Um, the only thing science does is provide evidence for or against a particular perspective. But if you're being a, a rigorous and good scientist, every piece of evidence is provisional. And so what I mean by that is if I come up with some uh, empirical evidence to support a particular claim, that might give me some confidence that that claim is true. But that evidence is always provisional in the sense that I could gather other evidence in a different context or in a different way and ultimately come to the conclusion that that original finding that I came up with was problematic in a variety of ways, whether it was spurious, it just happened by chance, or it could be that there were some other factors that were playing in that I didn't control for. And so the conclusions that we draw in science are, are always provisional, and we're never really proving anything. But what we are doing is trying to shade the areas of probability. I actually use a, <clears throat> a term that, that Richard Dawkins uses when he, when he talks about science. And especially when we're talking about science and talking about the unprovable uh, sorts of things like, you know, religious beliefs and what have you. But I think it applies here, too. We don't prove that one thing uh, is true or exists uh, or what have you, but we do shade the areas of probability where we say, yeah, we have more or less confidence in this based on the evidence. And the more evidence you have, the more confident you can feel in that conclusion but you should never 
really, I think as, as a scientist should, should never get too comfortable with the idea that you've proven one, something one, one way or the other, uh, so, because we could always be wrong in some way. So put it a different way. Are you with each piece of evidence or let's say with each additional study in a, in a, in a vein of research, you're at least reducing the likelihood of that theory being false. Exactly. So, so let me use. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not a biologist. I'm not an evolutionary biologist. But evolution is a is a really great example. Um, there, there is no one evolutionary theory. There's a whole range of of, of evolution related theories. And one of the things that you said that people tend to do if there's a particular scientific theory that they don't like is they'll find one piece of evidence that they think disproves. That, that particular theory. And the reason why that's problematic is they may have found one evidence that is contrary to what that theory says, but they fail to account for the thousands of other pieces of evidence that are very much consistent with that. And so whenever, you know, the rule in sciences you have is that you have conflicting evidence. What you have to do is consider which piece of evidence is stronger and which one has the most rigor, which and the, where the most rigor has the most value. And so, yeah, absolutely. You The more research, the more studies you do on a particular subject matter, the more things point in the exact same direction, the more confidence you have in that. But you always have to be open to the idea that you just missed something, that everyone has missed something. And uh, ultimately, that proves to be wrong. And that's that's progress. That's how science works is by figuring out what we're doing right, but also figuring out what we're doing wrong. Well, that's probably a good segue to talking about um, being consumers of science. As you and I were talking offline, many behavior analysts have training in single subject or within subjects designs with regard to evaluating research and things like that. Um, and it's possible that many of us who are um, have backgrounds in, in psychology and, you know, general psychology and experimental psychology have had exposure to between subjects or, you know, um, experimental designs or what have you. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that there are probably, uh, others who, who haven't had that exposure. So how do we, how, how can we be good consumers of science? Because, you know, there's always these things you see in popular media, you know, such and such study, you know, and had this, you know, control and experimental group and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, as a behavior analyst, we're, you know, we're used to consuming things, uh, um, research in terms of, you know, baseline, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. phase changes, you know, uh, you know, reversals, you know, et cetera. Um, so to the kind of less trained eye, if you will, can you, can you help us out here? You know, what are some things that we should look for and what are some red flags, you know, what, 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 you know, when things might get a little fishy, if you will. Yeah, sure. No, I'm, uh, I think it's it's a great question. And I would, um, so for behavior analysts, uh, hopefully, and this is where, you know, again, I come back to this idea of I'm a scientist before I'm a psychologist and a psychologist before I'm a behavior analyst. And I would hope the behavior analysts are uh, scientists first and foremost. And, and what that would mean is that they're consuming evidence, that they're consuming information that comes from outside their field. You have to keep in mind that the uh, one of the great aspects of science is its self-correcting machinery, that if you're doing something wrong, um, 
you know, it might be hard for you to notice that you're doing something wrong, and it's a lot easier for someone else to do something wrong. And if you have pieces of evidence that are conflicting uh, from outside the field, that's that's important to know about. Uh, it's not always comfortable to know about, but it's important to know about um, because it can help give you an insight in, into thinking how you could be doing things different. So what I would suggest is that behavior analysts, I would recommend, you know, if they don't have an understanding of between groups designs and randomized control trials, maybe to learn a little bit more, uh, not to add more to their lives, but rather to make them better consumers of scientific uh, research. The, the reality is, for better or worse, the vast majority of, of scientific research out there is done using designs other than single case designs. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the things uh, I saw uh, Greg Hanley talk about at a, at a talk years ago is that, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the kind of um, groundbreaking LOVAS study of, of uh, you know, um, that was a group's design and that was one of the ways in which that got attention because people were able to you know consume it if you will who weren't used to looking at data presented or data you know uh, collected in a, in a within subjects or single subject format yeah absolutely and and um you know I've, I've heard several behavior analysts talk about how important it is to to reach across the aisle if you will to uh, to journals and, and use uh, procedures that are attractive to other approaches. The bottom line is behavior analysts in many ways do have the market cornered on how to approach certain types of, uh, of, of problems. What gets in the way is not their ability to effectively address problems, but their ability to communicate uh, th those approaches to non-behavior analysts. And so I would say, you know, Part of that starts at change starts at home, uh, learning to appreciate other designs. So learning about how randomized control trials work and group designs work. Um, that being said, there's uh, I, I would argue the same way for the other side for folks who are between groups folk uh, to learn the power of single subject design as one method for understanding how the world works is incredibly powerful and, and people are missing out on um, some very important information. But in terms of red flags, when you're reading about group designs, you know, in the popular media or or in referee journals, I would say isn't so much about the group designs themselves, but again. Uh, stepping back and being scientifically minded about what you're reading about. I mean, on both counts, it's important to remember that conclusions in science are drawn from multiple studies using a range of methods from different labs that reach the same general conclusion. But when you read any particular uh, uh, peer-reviewed research and certainly uh, popular media accounts of, of research, you have to consider their place in the overall picture. So popular media accounts are motivated not so much by presenting truth or what we know about that phenomenon in a comprehensive way, but what grabs a reader's attention. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just, it's just the way that it is. And so we have to, I think, be wary of the seductiveness of, of what we, what we read in, um, in the newspaper and on news reports, but by the same token, any one research study, that's one research study well, conducted that, by a bunch of flawed humans in one research lab. And if it, you know, and that could be absolutely true. It may very well be, but usually when you're reading a headline about it's about one study and not maybe the 30 other studies that have done the same thing and found something different. 
So if I hear about a study as I'm driving into work on the radio, what I'm hearing from you is that, yes, that should pique my interest and curiosity. Uh, and if it's something I, I am interested in terms of knowing whether or not that study is uh, more rather than less true, that, that to consider that that's only one data point, if you will, in the con and, and, and what might be an otherwise larger background of related research. Absolutely. I mean, and, and the thing is, when I hear these studies, I, I hear studies on um, if I'm listening to the news or I'm you know, looking at the news online and I see a, a report of a study, I get excited about it. I get, I get very jazzed about it or upset or unhappy, <laughs> depending on, on if, it, if, it, if it's consistent with how I, how I view the world works, uh, how, the, you know, how I view things. But uh, you should get excited. You should be interested in it. But what you should never do is uh, view it as uh, truth in any way. It's, it's maybe it's a, a picture, um, w one picture of what's going on in the world, but it, it doesn't represent everything. And you have to take science in its totality, not any one study. Um, do you have um, any other red flags that you're thinking of? So in terms of what? In terms of, you know, evaluating research from a, you know, especially when it's presented by the popular media, you know, someone with, you know, a background who's, you know, not necessarily as well versed in, you know, kind of uh, large randomized controlled trials, et cetera. You know, what are some oh, things sure. to look out for, you know, like, you know, I'm thinking, and again, my, my stats are um, as old as perhaps, you know, you remember them, <laughs> you know, in other words, back in the <laughs> 90s, um, you know, so I'm thinking things like, you know, small N sizes oh, sure. or, you know, things along those yeah. lines. Well, I think what, I mean, one of the things for, from the behavior analytic perspective um, when it comes to, so maybe I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer a, di a different question, but I'll come oh, back. Oh, back. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But from the behavior analytic perspective, one of the things, you know, when you're reviewing research, keep in mind, I think most behavior analysts, again, we get trained with more of a single subject design approach. And there's some real power in, the, in an ideographic approach and single subject design where you can establish some control. And, you know, and I think that's very good. But and, and behavior analysts sometimes get uncomfortable with these large end studies. If you have a, a treatment group of 50 people, you, you know, you get uncomfortable with behavior analysts get uncomfortable with that because they feel like you're losing some of that individual variability within that. But I think it's important to keep in mind there's exquisite and beautiful power in those large ends because it helps control for a variety of other things that are going on that you can't control for at the single subject uh, level. But the the issue is to understand some of the strengths of different research designs and uh, using in between groups designs has strengths and it certainly has uh, limitations. Um, in terms of, you know, thing, red flags to look out for when you talk about media accounts of things, I mean, I mean, there's, you could probably teach an entire class on, on these sorts of things and how, how the media operates. But it's important to keep in mind that these folks a lot of times are reading an abstract of a journal article. And one of the things I always tell my students is the devil is always in the details. And when I'm writing a journal article and I, the, the abstract represents a summation of what the findings are, 
uh, and it ignores some of the very, very important details that are going on. And you have to be uh, aware of some of the methodological details of any research study to really understand its importance because it's very easy to gloss over things and um, not attend to some of the important uh, methodological aspects of the study that can uh, give you either more or less confidence in, in that particular finding. And if, the fact is that most media outlets do not report those things. That's not – they don't have time to report those things. And so – but being a good – Or the expertise. Or the expertise. And so being a good consumer means taking everything with a grain of salt. And that and that goes for whether it's a media personality reporting something, but it also goes for if it's a, a bona fide expert reporting something, everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt, and you have to be able to look at the details. I see. Um, very good. Um, I, I want to kind of transition into a pet topic of yours, uh, pseudoscience. Um, sure. What's your definition of pseudoscience? <laughs> um, that's a that's a good, that's a really great question. Uh, defining pseudoscience is it's funny. It's kind of you know defining pseudoscience. It's it's almost kind of like defining pornography, right? Uh, you know, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And uh, pseudoscience is the same way. It's not a dichotomous phenomenon where this is pseudoscience over here and this over here is science. The reality is that there are, there are fuzzy boundaries between the polar opposites in an abstract sense of what science and pseudoscience is. Um, sometimes you can see something that is very, very clear. Okay, this, this represents science. And then over here at the very end, this is very obviously pseudoscience. But those are the exceptions. The rule is there are things that tend to occur in the middle where it's hard to know whether pseudo, whether a phenomenon is science or pseudoscience. There are just these fuzzy, fuzzy boundaries between these two phenomena. And so it's hard – while it's hard to say what science and pseudoscience is, what I typically advocate for is that people um, simply look for warning signs that might indicate – pseudoscience uh, or some degree of pseudoscience uh, or some degree of more scientific approaches uh, to things. So, you know, just as a, maybe as a few handful of examples here, you know, one of the defining features of pseudoscience is the absence of self-correction. So if someone makes a claim that sounds very sciencey um, and yet it, that claim doesn't change as a function of incoming evidence. That's that's fundamentally what science is. You 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 make a, a provisional claim about the world, and then that claim changes as more evidence comes in. Um, and so, but one of the defining features of pseudoscience is that uh, you have a claim that tends to stay exactly the same regardless of the evidence that 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 comes in. So and so. Is it more like uh, it transitions into an issue of faith? It, I, you know, no, and not to get into any theological discussion, no, not, no, but no. you know, it's like okay, well, the, 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 we've run past the evidence. Yeah, exactly. And but well, I still yeah. feel it in my bones that this is sure, the way right? it ought to, you if know. It, yeah, I you know I I don't care what all this evidence says. Like I I feel like this is absolutely true, and I think that that is uh, could be very very much the case. Um, 
so it, it ultimately becomes an issue of I'm going to hold on to this belief. I'm going to hold on to this this view of the world in spite of evidence to the contrary. Uh, that's pretty classic pseudoscience. And so when you think about things like astrology, you know, claims made by astrologists have pretty much stayed the same over the last couple of thousand years. Um, and uh, in spite of incoming evidence to make it very clear that those claims have no basis in reality, there's been no adjusting to, to, to that evidence. Uh, you know, the other uh, common warning sign for pseudoscience is the overuse of uh, what we call ad hoc uh, or post hoc hypotheses for things. So you make a claim about something, you make a prediction about something, and then when you test that prediction, it turns out to not be true. And then you say, well, no, I'm right. It's just that there was something going on that interfered with me demonstrating my rightness. Mm -hmm. And you, you, tend, you tend to see this in the context of uh, psychics and um, uh, people, people making psychic predictions where um, they're great at making psychic predictions until you start to put some controls in place that make it harder and harder for them to make predictions um, that are based on very naturalistic explanations um, uh, for things. And, but you see this in, in psychology all the time where people will make a claim about a particular intervention, uh, make very, very powerful claims about, about the intervention. But as soon as it gets put to the test under rigorous controls, the claims fall apart. The, they'll have an explanation that you know the researchers did something wrong or there was something different about the sample of people. There's always an explanation for why it didn't work out. You know, the treatment of autism you know, has its examples of, uh, I don't know, uh, yeah, we can call it pseudoscience, we can call it, um, you know, strategies that aren't established, you know, I guess using the most, um, I don't know, euphemistic description sure. uh, and, and so forth, um, you know, and things like uh, oxygen chambers and, you know, m mega vitamin diets, uh, you know, and other types of, you know, the biomedical interventions kind of come to mind. Sure. Uh, and I'm sure there are others as well that I'm, you know, um, you know, oh, and of course, you know, um, the, the granddaddy of them is the vaccine issue and, and, and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, you have some thoughts on, you know, kind of what the uh, um, what might be motivating some of these, you know, can you share those? Sure, sure. I love it. I would like to point out before I say that, though, that the, the examples that you gave her are great examples of what I just said, like the the absence of self-correction. So the, the the vaccine hypothesis in terms of a be, being a cause for autism um, is, a, is a really great example of the absence of self-correction where you have very profound claims being made about how um, vaccines affect uh, or, or, or cause autism, which is incredibly scary, by the way, and could very well be the case. And if it's true, it, then then you should find evidence for it. Uh, that, but then the problem being that 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 perspective doesn't change as a function of evidence. To the contrary, it's a pr pretty classic indication of pseudoscience. But um, so let me. Can, Ask me your question again. I, 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 pre <laughs> I prefaced my answer for your question with with uh, with, an, with another with another answer. What, what, what like, was... well, you, you're doing a good job of of, of answering your own question. So <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe I should just step aside for a no, This is the Steve <laughs> Lawyer podcast. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, so uh, all, all joking aside, um, what um, uh, you, you were saying that you had some thinking about why some of these theories take hold and don't go away despite the absence of evidence. 
Oh, absolutely. So one of the things that you tend to see in in pseudoscientific approaches and like say alternative medicine is you have um, I would say I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. You have practitioners who genuinely have the best interests of the client or the patient or the individual at heart. I think a lot of times um, they they honestly do have people's best interests at heart. They're not necessarily trying to con them. Um, so, but what maintains these beliefs in spite of evidence that, to the contrary? And the bottom line is, hope springs eternal when it comes to the types of problems that people run into where there are not clear indications about how we meaningfully address those problems. So where alternative medicine and pseudoscience really um, uh, fills a gap is in those areas where we don't have bona fide interventions, medical, psychological, behavioral interventions that effectively and meaningfully and quickly um, address the concerns that people have. So this is pretty classic alternative medicine where you have this alternative medicine that works really, really great, but not it doesn't work great for the types of problems that we already have solutions for. It works really, really great for the types of problems where we simply don't have great interventions. And so if you can imagine being a parent of a child who is sick or if you're someone who is very sick, has a, has a behavioral problem that um, that uh, where we don't have great interventions, it makes sense that someone who comes in with great confidence to sell a product um, that can help you with your problem, in spite of the fact that there's zero evidence to uh, to support that that statement, it's very easy to hang on to that because there's nothing really else to grab onto. And so it's it's a very dangerous area where you have people who are desperate, you have people who are very sick, people who are in pain. It makes them very vulnerable to claims that lack any empirical support whatsoever because they're desperate. They're trying very uh, desperately to, to get help for the problem that they have. And so it's, it's, very hard to, it, it, it's very hard to get people away from that because when you don't have a great alternative option uh, to give them, um, it's, uh, it, it's, very, it's a very, very difficult argue to, uh, argument to make. Um. Yeah, and you know, and again, relating that back to the you know ABA treatment for autism and things like that is this. It's a situation where there is a viable alternative that does have you know a significant amount of evidence behind it. I'm wondering if you know that just the 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 uh, extreme challenges and time commitments and all those other things that come along with you know, doing a, you know, 25 to 40 hour a week ABA program, you know, there's that. And then you have on this other, you know, then there's the hyperbaric oxygen chamber or, you know, this other facilitated communication, et cetera, you know, that, um, I, I could see how, well, that's, you know, that might be a lot easier and less time consuming and it's not icky like behaviorism is, you know, and I think, you know, this prep, you know, and so, um, there might be some, you know, kind not only, uh, you know, time commitment uh, issues, uh, but also perhaps, you know, some of the, um, you know, 
bad PR or some of the myths that have been, you know, kind of propagated about behavior analysis as well that might, you know, shift people. I'm, I'm, and I'm mainly thinking of parents here into the direction of, you know, these kind of less, uh, uh, you know, uh, developed alternative uh, remedies, if you will. Sure. And absolutely. I mean, uh, so let, let me add a fourth level. So I'm a scientist, psychologist, behavior analyst. After that, I'm a behavioral economist. Uh, the work that I, I, you know, I do research on delay discounting. And one of the things that's relevant here is people are much more sensitive to to outcomes if they are if they're immediate versus versus delayed. And the fact is, behavior analysis is outstanding for the treatment of autism. But the problem with behavior analysis is that it's a long-term solution. It takes a long time and it's an enormous amount of work. The response cost associated with applied behavior analysis for autism is pretty profound. And, but if you, if, so if I come in and say, well, yeah, sure, you can do that if you want, but we're going to go after the real source of the problem and we're going to do it in a way that leads to a much more immediate positive outcome. You're tapping into just the you know standard basic human vulnerabilities of being sensitive to those much more immediate outcomes, and that's that's a very difficult uh, uh, barrier to uh, to cross if you're trying to make a make a sale on a product that has much more empirical support, much more efficacy and effectiveness, uh, but it just takes longer to do. It's harder to do. And it's probably more expensive. Yeah, the response effort with uh, you know rigorous ABA interventions high, so we sure know, we all know that reduces responding in the, in the most basic uh, uh, behavior analytic terms. So, well, you mentioned behavioral economics, and so I think probably what I'll do is uh, leave that as a cliffhanger for uh, Steve Lawyer Part Two. Um, <laughs> uh, so before we you know kind of close the book on science and pseudoscience, are there any other thoughts that you want to leave us with? Well, I I think that you know the the, the big issue and the, the the struggle that I have, and one of the things for behavior analysts listening to this podcast, you know, I, that I'd like them to take you know take away uh, is this this issue of how do we separate sense from nonsense? How do we separate um, science from pseudoscience? And, you know, I always try to advocate for open-minded skepticism. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, this is pretty standard mantras in the, in the skeptical and, and, and science community, is you have to be open-minded to, particular, to, to, to claims that, that may very well be the case. And that open-mindedness is what makes science great. But the other thing that is, is part of that, you can't just uh, just be open-minded and be open to anything that might be. You have to balance that open-mindedness with empirical skepticism, where you might believe that you know a claim is possible, but the extent to which you believe it um, should be um, in uh, in measure with how much evidence there is to support that claim. And so I would advocate for people to be absolutely open-minded about things, but a good skeptic is both open-minded and critical and looks for the evidence for that support. And it's easy for us to do when we're looking at what other people to do. It's a lot harder to do when we're looking at ourselves. And But that's uh, part of what we have to do as good behavior analysts and good scientists. Well said. Hey, Steve, thanks a lot. This is great stuff. Thanks, Matt. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, the take-home message today is this. 
Pseudoscience is like pornography. So if you don't take anything else away from this podcast, remember that. Uh, also remember that, uh, yeah, we got the uh, 50 Cent tour of Steve's office. And I will put a video clip of that uh, for all of you who want to see what that looks like. I will uh, put a clip of our Skype conversation, uh, the video recording of that on uh, the website that's at uh, behavioralobservations.com. So, uh, anywho, um, I uh, want to thank Steve for coming on the show and, um, and in all seriousness, uh, talking about a topic that is uh, really relevant to our practice Uh, thanks a lot everyone we'll see you in the next episode thank you for listening to the behavioral observations podcast with matt sicoria you can find matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com we also invite you to stay connected with us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on twitter at behavior podcast (laughs) 